Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of March 15th, 2021. I'm Jim Henson, Director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Joined again today by Josh Blank, Research Director for the same Texas Politics Project. Josh, how rested are you today? Getting there. Getting Mm. what's what's the scale <laughs> <laughs> one to seven uh five i'll take a five okay that's not bad yeah seven being most rested right i don't um, i don't know if i'm ever a seven since i had kids yeah but. yeah i haven't been a seven <laughs> yeah. in years <laughs> it's been almost a decade um, but yeah <laughs> right so today we want to look at the uh a couple of things one is the the unfolding political response to last month's storm-related power outages, which is taking an enormous amount of bandwidth um, in the Texas legislature and and Texas politics, and, and in particular, the financial issues that have arisen from that. And we'll, we'll go into that a little bit in a minute. Um, and then if we have time, I want to talk a little bit about the context of the public rollout of the you know much anticipated and uh, quote unquote election integrity push in the legislature that Governor Abbott declared an emergency item and has multiple sponsors in the legislature and, and how that is shaping up, particularly given that even though it's not a big surprise here in Texas and certainly for people watching this, it seemed to have really you know taken the, the national political media by storm, which is kind of interesting. Um, but let's start with the politics of what is now Senate Bill 2142. And when we recorded this <laughs> podcast last week, Senate Bill 2142 was, I think, nothing more at best than a gleam in the lieutenant governor's eye, if that. Right. I don't even think it was um, a placeholder. It didn't exist. Was- yeah, no. Yeah. The bill itself didn't exist. But I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure exactly when they, you know, if we recorded last Tuesday, they were probably cooking it up by then. Um, it was a couple days later when the lieutenant governor you made think- his big surprise That's appearance. That's interesting. You think so? Because, I mean, if they were, don't you think they would have filed just a a shell bill so as not to have to do what they did this week? I mean, we're kind of getting ahead of the game here. Sorry. Um, yeah, no, I don't, because I think that they were kind of, st- I mean, I think this has all been unfolding pretty quickly, okay. but, you know. Continue. Sorry. I mean, I, that's why I said I don't know. So, you know, I mean, the headline around this for people that watch this is that it's it's brought some very open conflict between the governor and the lieutenant governor over what the lieutenant governor is pushing and his pose on this. So if we go back, you know, to the fundamentals um, the Senate this week very quickly introduced, then passed, <laughs> introduced, had a, about a 20-minute committee hearing to cross that T and dot that no I. No public testimony. With no public testimony and then moved to the floor and passed basically uh, all on the same day. That's one way in which the COVID protocols make it easier. Senate Bill 2142. Um you know, and what the bill does is call for the PUC and ERCOT to, you know, immediately, as as the bill analysis puts it, um, 
to correct the prices of wholesale wholesale power and ancillary service that were sold in the ERCOT market during the period beginning 11.55 p.m. February 17th and ending 9 a.m. February 19th. So all of this has fallen out of the, the contracted external audit that said that there had been a massive amount of overbilling, $16 billion. Well, they originally said $16 billion, and then they corrected it and said, well, it's probably closer to $4 billion, But I mean, it kind of says, you know. Net, yeah, like a net net for yeah. once you, you know. Shake it all out. Under pressure. But then they kind of walked that back a little bit too as this all unfolded. So and just and just to just to be clear, and I think you you I mean you have a much better grasp on this the whole you know, a lot of aspects of this than I do. And I mean so so basically I mean my understanding is is that, you know, essentially ERCOT's in a situation, there's not enough energy production going on. They went to the PUC and said, hey, we need to increase, you know, the, the market cap price that we'll pay for energy to incentivize more energy production into the system. The PUC said yes, and then this bill and then basically they let that go and on that for was, too long. And that was Monday. And that was Monday night. And the idea is, is just to correct the, basically the point Monday of which, night of the shortage. Right. And the, the yeah. idea here is to basically correct the market for the period after which it's been decided. I'm not saying this with any criticism, but after the fact that they should have readjusted the pricing at a certain point, they're basically saying to correct the pricing from then on. Right. I mean, you know, the competing narratives are, you know, basically, <laughs> yeah. you know, the PUC and ERCOT left the price, you know, at the higher, at the higher point for too long, right. which resulted in, you know, overbilling that now threatens to ripple through the system. If, you know, from the perspective of some people in which, you know, high bills were, you know, were sent to electricity providers. They were probably higher than a lot of them at contr- the rates they had contracted. And we've already seen, you know, some financial difficulties, even the degree of financial difficulties became a point of argumentation mm-hmm. by the end of last week. Um, but the idea being that you could go back and retroactively, and this is what the bill orders them to do, retroactively lower the price and then lower the price of the bills. And, you know, at this point, you know, if anybody's paid up, which they probably haven't, you know, just readjust everything, which is going to redistribute the costs. And and, and I've not heard, and I've not heard, listen to every second of the hearings mm-hmm. I've also not heard about exactly, you know, what the real, you know, the quote unquote real market price would have been and how they would know that. Well, and it also seems that there's also a clear debate about whether this can even really be done. Right. right. I, I mean, mean, you know, like from a legal, I mean, not that the legislature. Yeah. Can't, well, can't, I mean, that can't. gets that gets well, that gets to the point of right. The politics. Right. Which is that the governor, the governor has said, you know, as this as this idea was being floated last week. You know, the governor pretty much went on the record, not pretty much, he went on the record saying that, you know, his reading of the Constitution as a former judge and former attorney general (laughs) was that there were provisions, ahem, (laughs) that there were provisions of the Constitution that forbade, you know, this, you know, in part because it would be, you know, essentially voiding pre-existing contracts. Yeah, exactly. And um, so... The lieutenant governor and, and and many of his allies, uh, the movement on this bill and the movement of, of some kind of action on this had a lot of support in the Senate. Uh, it passed 27 to 3, I think, I think. Yeah, I think all but three senators you know, signed on a letter saying that their charges should be reversed. And, somehow, I, and I think and it's 27 3 and one abstention because it was, I think, Kelly Hancock, who's the chair of the relevant committee, I right. believe, was his rationale. 
Yeah. And although, you know, he, he provided more of a rationale, which is that he, aside from the chair thing, he came out, I think in the last day or two and said that there were, he had substantive objections as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and that itself was another little, you know, eddy of this, of this whole thing. So, you know, I thought that, you know, what was interesting for, you know, what we, the kind of things that we've been talking about here is that the politics of this and the politics of this, you know, have moved very quickly in the Mm -hmm. sense that, you know, last week when Lieutenant Governor Patrick showed up in a, in a very highly unusual appearance to question the chair and last man standing at the PUC because the other two members have resigned uh, about this. Uh, it was a very combative appearance in which he accused the PUC chair of, of lying about a couple of things, uh, accused him of being incompetent, reminded him that he needed, you know, he was Governor Abbott's appointee and sent very clear signals to Governor Abbott that um, he thought Governor Abbott should make a declaration, you know, in support of this approach, even though the go, you know, and the governor has been on the record and went on the record again after this saying he would not do that. I, I liked, or was not in favor of that. I love that. I mean, just as like, just as I find all this entertaining to me, like in this, by the, all this, I mean, politics just generally, otherwise we wouldn't yeah. do this. But I mean, Abbott's response to that was just so I thought was kind of great in some ways, which was, you know, yeah, the legislature can legislate on this and like, somebody's going to need to implement what you legislate, yeah. like somebody's still got to be there. I mean, is it? Yeah. I mean, I mean, in essence, it kind of, you know, it amounted at least in part to, yeah. Yeah. I've already said the legislature should do something, but not this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so, you know, in the implicit, you know, people spent the weekend in the eddy of a very familiar and to my mind, I, you know, I don't know. It, I shouldn't say strange because I get it. You know, a very familiar round of speculation about what the Lieutenant governor's, motivation was would you know did this mean the lieutenant governor was you know going to challenge the governor uh in the republican primary um you know speculation on twitter in print you know wherever people were getting together many of them probably unmasked giving the people we're talking about to discuss these things over the weekend um and then you know monday came and you know which would be yesterday as we record this and then the Senate did this, you know, uh, you know, super sped up again, very unorthodox version in which they had to, you know, work on the legislative, you know, had to define the legislative day as last Thursday <laughs> and reverse the clock. And we've seen that before, but it's doesn't happen every day. Usually when you know, we every do Monday, when we, every Monday does not become the previous Thursday in the yeah. legislature. When we go back in time in the legislature, it's kind of unusual. <laughs> Yeah, that usually it's a flag that there's something going on, and, and time travel. The bill sailed through with you know relatively minimal debate, um, and then the person we haven't talked about here is the the Speaker of the House, who early on, as this was being discussed, had sent a, a very much a kind of tap the brakes signal about what his approach and what he thought the House approach should be, which was, you know, yes, something needs to be done, but we need to consider it. And at one point, I think early last week or maybe even late the week before, he had said, and, you know, this could probably wait. You just could even wait till a special session when we had time to give it the attention it deserves. So what you have is, you know, people in very different positions on this. And I think it, you know, it underlines, of, you know, of things that we've been talking about for years, which is that there's there's always been this behind the scenes tension between the governor and the lieutenant governor. 
um, that they've done a pretty good job of not letting out into the open. Mm -hmm. Although almost anybody you talk to inside assumes this is a fact of life. Yeah. You know, I've been trying, you know, this is interesting. I mean, you brought the, you've already alluded, if not directly stated the fact that this is sort of a, I don't know, a consistent kind of frame really about how, you know, I think a lot of people think about the internal politics of the legislature, this idea of some sort of a competition, you know, between either the governor, the lieutenant governor on the, or the lieutenant governor, the governor, depending on how you look at it and all, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, my kind of first reaction to that is it just sort of feels lazy in this moment. I mean, I don't, you know, I mean like it's there and it's kind of easy, but I mean, Patrick, I mean, to your point, you know, Patrick came out after the lazy on their part or lazy on the part of people interpreting it lazy on the part of people interpreting it. Yeah. Okay. I think it's, I think it's a lazy frame at this point. I mean, I, you know, I'm not saying that Dan Patrick is there's 0% chance he would challenge Greg Abbott in a Republican primary for governor. I mean, look, a lot of things can happen between now and then, but it seems like a pretty low probability situation. And I mean, even to the point where, you know, again, Patrick unprompted basically came out on, I think it was Monday or Tuesday and, or, and said, or Monday yesterday and said, I'm not running against the governor. Okay guys. Like, I mean, he's trying to, you know, I mean, yeah. now that doesn't mean well, I believe he, every- he felt, he felt prompted. He felt prompted well, by from our friend the, Ross Ramsey's well, article in the Texas Tribune. Well, and that's the point. He felt prompted by a weekend of coverage that framed what he was trying to do. I think in a way that, you know, I don't, I mean, I just think again, I think it's kind of lazy, you know, in some ways. I mean, I think there's a lot of things going on here that I could point to that I think are more, you know, telling in terms of style, in terms of representational government, and in terms of other things that probably point to where these guys are coming from, and also the leg- and also the, the process itself. Now, none of those might be right. I'll just say that, but they're more complicated. <laughs> you could be wrong too. Oh, I could totally be wrong, but they're more complicated than this whole. Well, you know, Dan Patrick is trying to make a Greg Abbott look bad. It's like, I don't, you know, I don't think so. I think there's some complications in there in terms of trying to make sure that the blame lands. At, somewhere that's not either of those two. And I think they're both trying to make sure that that's the case, but they're also following styles that I think are pretty like well-worn for them in some ways, you know and I mean? And they have different incentive structures, right? So I mean, just a couple things and I'll, you know, you can go and say, I don't agree with you on that or whatever, you know, but I mean, to some degree, you know, right now, I think the thing about this issue in general is that, you know, obviously it's sucking up a ton of oxygen because constituents are mad. Legislators are hearing about it. It's an issue, you know, so when there's an issue like that, I think, you know, politicians want to act. It's their job to respond to constituent concerns. That makes a lot of sense, right? Just on its face, I would say, you know, Greg Abbott's approach to some degree, you know, setting aside the responsibility question for a second has been like, you know, kind of the way he is about a lot of things, which is to be, you know, a mixture of both, you know, political but selective, right? And how he approaches these things. Dan Patrick is still a bit of a shock jock, right? I mean, we're still, you know, and and, when I, and what am I talking about here? What I'm talking about is, is that what happened with the, the blackout was a complicated systemic failure writ large, I would say, uh, you know, and the system was designed by the legislature and pr- approved by politicians in the state for years and not really improved upon. Ultimately, a lot of the actions of the last few days seem to my mind to be focused on really shifting the blame to individual failings, whether that be Bill Magnus at ERCOT, whether that be the PUC members, whether that be the, the out-of-state board members, and basically say, somebody messed this up. You know, somebody really made a mistake here. And what we're doing is, is we're cleaning house. I'm making action and we're going to do something. We're going to change this. Because honestly, that's more salient and tangible to like ordinary people and voters than is something that adjusts, you know, 
the the way you know a specific function of the way that the energy market, which is pretty complicated in Texas, works. So that's like one aspect of it. I'll put that out there. I don't know if you know if you. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think as as far as that goes, all those things are in play. I mean, certainly, you know, almost from you know before the crisis was even over, mm-hmm. uh, the the governor was sending the signal that that you know. You know, they you know we just say it. I mean, they were fitting Bill Magnus and the Pius and the and ERCOT mm-hmm. for the blame for all this, and you know, pushed that message pretty consistently. You know, for as long as they could until you know this, the emer- you know the, the 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 first round of legislative hearings when the PUC sort of got dragged into the picture and, and Abbott didn't have the leverage. The governor didn't have that that the leverage in the process to protect the PUC and. I think importantly, and this is, I think, what I would add to that explanation is something we, I think we talked about last week or week before, and we talked about this. And that's the, you know, if you look in the interest group universe and, you know, the tectonics of the Republican Party, you know, protection of the Railroad Commission and, and you know, accommodating the role that, that oil and gas played in this and that, you know, still remains kind of out of the frame in a lot of these discussions. And I think that's the thing. And I think that's when I say that the whole, well, this is Abbott or this is, you know, Patrick trying to kneecap Abbott is a lazy frame because that's exactly, I mean, mean, there's so much coalitional elements in here that are really at play. Well, right. And so I'm just adding the coalitional elements. Yeah. And I'm I'm agreeing with you. I mean, I think that's, but I think that's the point is why, you know, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think you know, and I think there, but you know, you know. So that said, I mean, I think you know. I mean, the interesting thing that you know, your kind of analysis. I mean, I don't know that I, you know, I don't know that I'd go so far as lazy because I think that, you know, it gets at an element that I think you see at all levels within the capital and at the system is that, you know, if you're trying to get something done in the capital, this is a factor. You know, mm-hmm. whether the lieutenant governor and the governor are on the same page or not, how the ongoing jockeying for position and how their calculations have been, you know, have affected each other mutually, you know, is kind of an unavoidable part of the of, of the of the topic if you're of the of playing the game if you're doing anything. And so I think, you know, I, I think I wouldn't say lazy so much as just reflexive. But what I would say is, is that, is that, is that better described as, uh, you know, a, an individual conflict between two politicians or is an institutional conflict between a governor who's been given a lot of power for a long period of time now over the year of COVID and a legislature that hasn't really been able to act, but now faced with, you know, this clearly salient, you know, this other clearly salient crisis in terms of, you know, energy, Patrick could say, well, I can act. And he, sh- and he, and he showed it. I mean, you know, now again, the yeah. house is the house element to this is another question, right? Yeah. And I mean, I wonder to what but, extent, yeah, anyway, go ahead. But the degree, but, the, but the, uh, what I would say is that, yes, I mean, yes, you know, the institutional piece of this you know, is the thing that people tend to underestimate systematically in this when they get really up into the, because it's easier to parse it out as an individual conflict. But I mean, the individual piece matters. I mean, you know, just, you know, it's hard to imagine just to, you know, to think, you know, to switch, you know, to control for the human variable here. Hard to imagine David Dewhurst trying something like this when he was Lieutenant Governor. 
very yeah. different personal approach to this, you know, very similar, you know, somewhat similar institutional position. Now, you know, pa- Patrick is more powerful for some of the coalitional popular. Well, and I'd also you know, say he's uh, more powerful. Both, in co- ins- both, both elite and, and voting base and just, and, and, but, but also there's a personal part of that is that he just, you know, He's occupy, he occupies the lieutenant governorship much more fully than his predecessor. Well, but and, and that's and that's politely. overt, but that's also overt, right? I mean, and also in response yeah. to, right? I mean, that's that's the thing, and right. so it is still an institutional thing. I mean, ultimately, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm not going to. Yeah. No. You know, if you don't want to change your mind, that's fine. But you know, but Dan Patrick and David Dewhurst and the personalities involved there, and Greg Abbott versus even Perry. And the personages there and, and their their position, their, their political positions are rooted in these institutional and coalitional politics. But it's hard, you know, but I mean, I guess, I guess I'm just sort of giving, you know, some people that are observing this the benefit of the doubt in noting that, you know, the, the personal strategies, as much as they're determined by all this structural and institutional stuff, you know, are a factor here. And I think that, you know, I mean... You know, as you were describing Abbott's strategy earlier, I mean, some of those factors seeped into that explanation, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, kind of characteristically Abbott, yeah, you know, kind of parsing this and parsing I, that. So some of that is at work. I, you know, to me, I mean, what really crystallizes, you know, for me and you know, how you kind of, I, I, to me, how I kind of divide all these different, you know, all these different factors that are, you know, obviously just, just like the electric thing. I mean, you've got two layers of, you know, two layers of real, you know, real complex, multidimensional systemic layers on top of each other. You've got the market piece, the electrical piece, which is very complicated and systemically complicated as you describe, which I think is absolutely right. Then you've got this, you know, weirdo institutional sort of design in Texas. You know, these things tend to have pretty, over-determining forces, you know, but I think that, um, you know, like, uh, you know, a reporter asked me yesterday, so, you know, this is really all just about Patrick, like wanting power, right? <laughs> and, you know, I, I think on one hand, that's, you know, sort of grossly oversimplified. Well, I say on not, one hand, all and, of politics, but let's just like, and not for right. A yeah. And, and, a, you know, obviously a little too general. You know, on the other hand, there is something to the fact that, you know, Patrick has proven to be much more interested in maximizing the power of his office than his predecessor was. Now, it used to be right after, you know, Patrick got elected, I thought that that contrast really mattered because so many of the players were doing compare and contrast. And I think that actually... Mm -hmm. That helped Patrick early on. I think it's not as much of a factor now because he's well, been there a while and there's turnover and but I, you know people have short memories and there's not that many people going oh I, David Dewhurst never would have done that yeah but I but, but I still I, think it's useful to make the contrast because it does give you a sense of like you know what's similar what's different and Perry was a much more powerful governor at that you know yeah well particularly not, I, later in the point. And I'm not arguing that the personalities don't make difference or that there isn't, you know, some sort of a struggle here. But to me, the struggle has always been over, you know, basically credit claiming more so than anything else. I mean, if I'm thinking about that relationship, setting Dewhurst aside, you know, I mean, Patrick came in guns a blazing and, you know, really ramped it up, you know, in terms of, the, I mean, I remember, you know, I remember when Patrick's, you know, started and it was like, here are my 30 agenda items. We're going to do a press conference. This is what's happening. 2017 goes out, tries to roll over the house with the bathroom bill, among other things. 
then yeah. gets pretty serious. Not only does Abbott one maneuver around all that incredibly well, you know, with the special session, basically at the end gets to say, Hey, look at all these things I had the legislature do, but also the stuff they didn't do, man, they messed up. Right. You have a really close election cycle. And then Patrick's been pretty, you know, I mean, for Patrick, since if you look, compare those first two sessions to the most recent session, and even the beginning of this one, people were commenting about, Hey, where's Patrick? Patrick's so quiet. And obviously he's oriented himself slightly differently. Maybe he's older, maybe he's calmer. I don't know, but it's a different thing but ultimately i think what they're both looking for in some ways is still you know the ability to claim credit for what happened now if that's the same thing as saying they're trying to take each other's you know, job or they're looking to get more power or whatever i guess so but i've never you know i've been well less i mean enamored I, you know, with the I, with, with the, the office argument of this it's, yeah i mean it still begs the question of claiming credit to what end mm-hmm. i mean it, you know unless credit is the end you know unto itself and i you know i mean i i, I and i think that's still an open I think it's an open question with, I mean, with, with the Lieutenant governor and, you know, I think, you know, with both of them, they both want to, at least you would think at least stay where they are and not lose ground. Um, you know, and that, and that does, you know, I mean, it does raise a matter again, you know, this is institutional in the way, you know, that you're talking about, you know, there's a certain, you know, inevitability, you know, there's, there's friction built into the institutional design here. Right. Right. And that's why, you know, if we think about the governors, you know, when governors have been successful, you know, at maximizing both, you know, whatever their credit claiming to whatever end that credit claiming goes, it's been governors that have orchestrated cooperation or been orchestrated by Mm -hmm. their, the governor and the Lieutenant governor. Right. So, you know, the successful, you know, the most successful sessions have been where that, you know, or, you know, for where everybody came out feeling like they got something is when those things happened. Yeah. You know, you think about the, you know, whatever the big transportation and water sessions, you know, obviously the preeminent example that, you know, I hate using, but, you know, is still, you know, the one, you know, the most preeminent example of, you know, the last generation or so a little more than a generation now, I guess is, is George W. You know the Bush Laney Bullock thing, mm-hmm. you know, and in a lot of ways that underlines the complexity of all the stuff we've been trying to untangle and going back and forth with here now. I mean, you know, did that happen because you know we were in a party transition and and you know Bush was a less deeply conservative Republican than a, than you know what we think of as the, you know the modal Republican now? Did it happen because you know Laney and Bullock were less liberal Democrats than we have now? Is it, you know, how much of that was the three of them? You know, is, you know, somebody that I've talked to about this always says all the time, yeah, you know, Laney and Bullock took Bush and they rocked him like a baby. And the <laughs> next thing you know, he was president. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I, I mean, just something like hearing you talk about this, I mean, the one thing that's, you know, that sort of strikes me in this is, you know, I wonder if the, the thing about this issue is and where the tension comes from is not about you know, power per se, or about, you know, someone trying to get to a different office. But I think part of it, there's a tension here because there's blame. Blame has to go somewhere. And ultimately, Mm -hmm. you know, I think, you know, in a really simple analysis, you say Patrick is really focused on getting the people Abbott appointed out of there. Now, the fact that Abbott, I mean, I could put Abbott appointed in parentheses. It's kind of not really necessarily the point here. And Abbott, not surprisingly, you know, being where he is, is like, no, I want to keep the people that I trust or that are, you know, and again, we've already cleaned house a lot. So like, let's just cool it. But, you know, 
there's tension here. I mean, and, and the tension does come down to the blame and then the credit claiming is sort of a separate piece. I mean, it kind of brings in, I mean, I think what it brings into all of this is the house also, which is, and then there's those guys who have no, des- who seem to have expressed no desire to move too quickly on any of this. And they're facing yeah. a different set of pressures. And I was trying to think about why that might be. And I've got like, well, I think, but, well, for, you know, well, I mean, you know, and what's interesting about that, I think is that, you know, this is underlined the different natures of the House and the Senate right now, you know, in this historical moment where, you know, you don't, you don't, you know, as, as, as the Lieutenant Governor, you know, enunciated in very grateful and thankful terms at the end of the set, you know, the, the, when the chamber had convened to pass the bill on, on Monday, you know, this, this could not have happened without the will of the body. It was very gracious but, you know, as we've noted here before, the will of the body seems to be very much, you know, driven by the lieutenant governor's boot and their collective behind or some kind of, you know, acquiescence to to what is going, you know, to what the lieutenant governor wants. Yeah. Think- and, you know, you, you give him credit for having wrangled the Senate in that way or, you know, however you want to kind of, you know, I mean, there are different, you know, different partisan ways of thinking about that. Um, can I give a cynical take? Yeah, sure. I mean, my cynical take is, is that, you know, they're going to kick it to the house and it's going to sit there for a long time and come back completely different if it comes back at all. So one, you know, you're, I mean, the same way you're, you're demonstrating action on this, you're doing it quickly and decisively. Ultimately the content of what they do may or may not actually, you know, ever really shake out specifically. And and you can point fingers elsewhere. Um, you know, I don't think it's even... As you point out, if we, yeah. I mean, I'd say you've been watching, you know, we've both been watching a bunch of hearings, you know, par- I think partially if you're a senator with less Senate, you know, less members and the same agenda, I think you want to do something on this, but still open up some space. And this gives you some, some breathing room. Yeah. I, and I think that, you know, I don't think it's cynical. I mean, you know, this would not be the first time, you know, that somebody, you know, that one chamber has passed the bill with the expectation that the other chamber would have to take responsibility like, for like either a, like a killing fight. it or yeah. yeah, for either killing it or changing it. I mean, this, you know, this bill seemed written, you know, I mean, I, you know, I don't think it's cynicism. I think it would be naive to not see that. I mean, you look at the bill, you know, the bill called for, you know, its content to be implemented by this Saturday. Yeah. You know, which, you know, puts the onus squarely on the house and then on the governor. And as, again, as, as, as Lieutenant Governor Patrick said in the in the press conference afterwards, in which he, you know, on one hand, you know, poo-pooed the absurd idea that he ever wants to challenge the, you know, the governor for anything. Uh, also, you know, said, you know, but it would also be very helpful if the governor would just signal to the House that he would sign the bill, right? You know, and that was the essence of what you're talking about, and that's you know, I, you know. I don't get cynical. I mean, I think that's how, you know, I think that's how these guys work when, you know, in the absence of this kind of perpetual conflict that we're talking about between both, you know, the Lieutenant governor and the governor and the house and the Senate. And we should say that as we record this, um, you know, the bill has been sent over to the house. Uh, it has not had first reading as of today. It's been, uh, you know, the, 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 the House has, has has adjourned until tomorrow on Wednesday, so they can't read the bill and refer it to a committee until tomorrow. You know, if the will was there, they could still, you know, theoretically, I think, pass the bill 
get it get it to the governor's desk by Saturday, and then I guess that afternoon he could sign it that day, and that afternoon they'd come up with something. But I mean, but the other piece of this, and you know, where I think the cynicism, where there is a fair accusation of cynicism, is that against myself, yeah, or that is that the lieutenant governor has been you know, pretty clear in saying, I think there was a quote that's been circulating that I think was from the, I'm not sure if it was from the press, I think it was from the press conference, which, you know, it's not clear who the winners or losers are if they don't change the billing or if they do. Right. And that I think is a big, <laughs> you know, is a, is, is, is a big tilt in the direction of going more slowly in the position that the house is going to take. Right. And, you know, I, and I think the politics of that, you know, are, are unknown. That's where, you know, the, the, that's where the gambling comes in here. Yeah. You know, is Lieutenant governor, you know, right. Quote unquote, that, you know, the best thing to be able to do is to say you acted quickly and you took action for action's sake. And for the sake of being able to say you did something that actually lowered people's bills, theoretically, maybe, or is, you know, the better political play to say, we took our time. We decided to do something this is what we did. And, you know, the Lieutenant governor might go around in a primary saying, you know, and some of those, some of the people that voted for that in the Senate saying we wanted to do something and other people obstructed us and they did this other thing. Will the other thing be sufficient? I don't think there's any way to know that right now. I think from a policy perspective, it's hard to argue for moving quickly more ignorantly. And well, by right. ignorantly, I don't mean to characterize the people as ignorant, but in the literal sense of, you know, with very limited information where they're still, you know, not very clear, you know, many of the facts of the situation and many of the projections of what would be done are, are not clear. Well, right. And I would, and I would argue, you know, worse than not doing anything at all would be telling people you're going to do something for them and then have it not happen after you right. say you did. Right. You know, and then, you know, and then there is also, you know, to, to lapse into the hoariest of cliches, you know, H-O-A-R. Um, you know, it does seem like in a situation there's been so much pain inflicted and so much has gone wrong, being guided by a principle of, you know, to modify the cliche, do no more harm, seems to me to be the way to proceed. And I think that is not that is not what we're seeing in the Senate, and we'll see what the pressure on the House is like. And you know, my my, if I had to predict right now, I think that this is, you know, in the you know, in terms of the unstable triad that is the big three, this creates a lot of incentives for uh, the Speaker of the House and the Governor to be on the same side and to box out the Lieutenant Governor, you know. And to and to put test to this discussion that we've had so many times, uh, from podcasts to print to panels to over beers in my front yard, just how powerful is Dan Patrick? Yeah, and I think this is going to be you know yet another illustration. There's going to be more grist for that mill, but I will be very surprised if the House does what Dan Patrick wants in this particularly given that the governor certainly doesn't seem to want to do this and certainly seems to want to do this a different way. You know, this is probably, and, you know, this, this is where, you know, if, if we want to, and we won't, you know, we did this in the weekly mailing that we send out. And if you'd like to get on that list, just shoot us an email. Um, what is that email? What's our generic email address? 
Uh, we'll send you the email address before the podcast is over. But as we put in there, you know, we Greg, you know, there's an ongoing debate right now over how much ground Greg Abbott has got. You know, you and I haven't even talked about this. There was a morning consult poll that came out yesterday that suggested a decline in in Abbott's approval. And if you look closely, his numbers got even more negative after he, you know, at least in this one set of data, after he announced the mandate. Didn't seem that hurt by the outages a little bit, but not a lot. The important you know, issue. An, a tr- a tr- attrition among some Democrats, a lot of attrition among Republic, among independents. And that's the key. And a little bit of, uh, and a little bit of, you know, a reduction in, in support, in the intensity of support and a slight reduction in extent of support among Republicans. I mean, you know, the independent thing, of course, you know, I, I sort of sent something to somebody, something that's saying, look, independents move around a lot. You look at the, the multi-year trend in our data, and you can just see independent support right. of Abbott kind of moving. And yeah, you know, I won't want to say constant; it's not erratic, but you yeah. know, it it fluctuates in waves. Well, the point you is, know, the we, point is, it's not anchored by partisanship. So, as you said, you know, Republicans might be less approving of the governor for whatever reason after any number of things if they want to be, yeah. but they're not going to be disapproving. They might just not be strongly approving. Right. Democrats, you know, they might increase their disapproval. You might see a few of them move from, you know, like somewhat approval to don't know, but your point is right, which is independents are much more impacted by short-term forces because they're not attached. Right. To and, and, you know, which, which and the headlines know, happen intuit- and intuitively makes a lot of sense. These are people that don't, you know, they don't have a lot of knowledge. They don't pay a lot of attention. The news gets bad. You know, you ask them, you know, if they want to blame the governor, it's like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, you got to blame somebody. Obviously, that's what we're learning. (laughs) Right. Which is, you know, again, the underlying kind of, you know, it goes back to the kind of some of the underlying dynamics here. Okay. We didn't get to elections this week, as you predicted, Josh. I didn't think we would. Credit is due. (laughs) But we will. But, but, you know, you it wasn't like an act of nature. You had some, you had some influence over us not well, getting to it. It's true. <laughs> so, I well, I. <laughs> so I you fact- were able to help to actualize your prediction. <laughs> I factored it in. <laughs> I think we call that planning. <laughs> well, one of us has to do it. <laughs> uh, so that'll do it for this week. Um, I don't think the election topic is going to go away. Uh, no. So maybe we'll hit that next week. Um, did you find that that email address? Oh, I'm sorry. It, it's a weird it's right. No, I can. Well, this is a bad time to do it. Probably <laughs> to search for an email. It's address okay. Well, we, we, I, I won't. Well, actually, you can look. You can look it up while I'm doing the windup. So thanks okay, to Josh for being here. Uh, we will, and thanks to our production staff and the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. We do have this mailing list that we send out all kinds of links to data, updates on the podcast. That email address is texaspolitics at mail.laits.utexas.edu. So that's texaspolitics so, at mail.laits.utexas.edu. So you can see why neither of us remembered it off the top of our head. So thanks for listening to this wandering podcast. Uh, keep an eye and keep an eye on the, all these issues. Be safe and be well, and we will talk to you next week. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.